0: Well, that will bring us line by line, verse by verse, up to Revelation 22, and then we'll finish Revelation 22 this Christmas with a Revelation Christmas. In fact, for Christmas, just to do something different, I think we ought to call it a Tribulation Christmas. Huh? That would be a new twist on Christmas, wouldn't it? We'll back up in Revelation, hit rewind a little bit, give them the world's worst days. See what they missed at the well, huh? So we are gonna finish up Revelation 22 in a four part series this Christmas, and I can promise it will be Christmassy, okay? Because we get to the good news after all the bad news in Revelation chapter 22. And then we will launch something back then in January. After the first year, we'll be launching back The Well, and it'll be a similar format to what you're used to here. And I'm not sure yet what we're gonna do. I've told you I'm gonna do the book of Leviticus next year, line by line, verse by verse. Um, And I'm telling you guys, people, People look at Leviticus and they look at me when they hear what I'm doing and honestly they think I've grown a third eyeball right here. (laughs) I promise you, if you loved Revelation, you're going to love Leviticus. I mean, the fingerprints of God is all over that book. Jesus said, remember what he said to the Pharisees? If you would have believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Yet the name Jesus is found nowhere in the writings of Moses. The first five books of the Bible, but guess what? Jesus is everywhere in the book of Leviticus. He wrote about him in word pictures and prophetic foreshadows. It's remarkable. You see the handprint of God everywhere. I can't wait to do the book of Leviticus with you. So that'll be next year, and I'm not quite sure yet uh, how much I'm going to do Leviticus on Sunday mornings versus how much I'm going to be doing in the well. So uh, that's why I haven't decided yet. But we will definitely be doing something in January of some kind. So uh, just... uh, Take the holidays off, enjoy some time Sunday afternoons with your family, uh, snuggle up with a you know heavy blanket and a cup of cocoa <laughs> or hot tea. It's a hot cider kind of day right now, isn't it, Becca? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, enjoy the rest of the year on Sunday afternoons with family and then we'll get fired up back then next January, Sunday afternoons and do some more Bible study together. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing, and then we're going to get right into the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Jesus, thank you for a great year together in the well, studying the Word of God together. Help us to drink deeply from the water of God's Word. Help us, I pray, to be more like you every day. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Hello. Boop, boop. There we go. Um, I like to stand when we sing. It's an old thing from choir. It it's helps you breathe it. better. It. Helps you vocalize better. I know we're mostly a bunch of Baptists in here, but if you get carried away, you can raise your arms too. And be all right. I never did that when I was growing up, when I was in Baptist Bible College. Uh, I ran from the Lord for a lot of years, like some of you know. And now I, when I'm singing in services, I find myself like this a lot because we have a wonderful Savior. Uh, What a friend we have in Jesus.
2: What a friend we have in Jesus All our sins and griefs to bear What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer, oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not care everything to god in prayer have we trials and temptations is there trouble anywhere we should never be discouraged it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. and heavy-laden, cumbered with a load of care. Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer, in his arms he'll take and shield thee, thou wilt find a solace there.
0: Welcome once again to our exciting study, the book of Revelation. We have worked for a long, long time to get to this moment in Revelation chapter 19. The crowning event, really, of the book of Revelation and really all of human history is the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to set up a kingdom on the earth that will be without end. Now, before we see the second coming, the culmination of God's plan for a kingdom is another really pivotal moment And it's the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19. Now, let me ask you a question. If you knew absolutely, without a doubt, that Jesus Christ was coming to rapture his bride uh, tomorrow or even next Tuesday, if you knew when it was and you knew it was imminent, how would it change how you live? You see, the reality is just one thing to hear a lesson or a sermon on the second coming of Christ and committed to our memory or just a little more theology, but it's another thing altogether than to live like it's really going to happen. And if we really believe that we're going to see Jesus one day face to face, and indeed it could be today, because biblically speaking, there is nothing that stands in the way of Jesus from coming right now for his bride. It should change how we live. We should live with urgency for the things that will matter for all you see of eternity. Revelation 19 now is a real shift in the book of Revelation. Very pivotal chapter. Because up to this moment from chapter 4 up to chapter 19 is a graphic description of those seven years' tribulation that's coming right before Jesus returns to set up His kingdom. Then in Revelation 19, the tribulation is over. And we go from days of judgment to days of joy uh, to the days where Jesus will return indeed with His bride to establish that kingdom that will be without end the crowning event of all of human history, the most dramatic event of all of history, certainly since the first coming of Jesus is the second coming of Jesus. Now, in the first 10 chapters, or I should say, first 10 verses of Revelation 19, we see two things. We see a celebration in heaven, and we see a ceremony in heaven. The celebration is actually marked now by four hallelujahs. We see a little hallelujah chorus going on in heaven as those in heaven are singing God's praises, and that's what hallelujah means, or hallelujah, as it's known in the Old Testament. It, it simply means praise the Lord, or praise ye the Lord. Every time you hear somebody in church say hallelujah, that's a little bit of a maybe churchianity, uh, uh, or or, uh, or maybe what I sometimes call a little Christianese, right? It's kind of the language we speak as Christians that maybe others don't speak, Listen, every time you hear somebody say hallelujah, and hopefully a spontaneous word of praise, it simply means praise the Lord, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And that's what's going on here in heaven. There's a celebration that precedes a ceremony. And it's a real time of hallelujah in heaven. The first time this word is used uh, is, uh, is back in the time of King David. Hallelujah is how it's said in the Old Testament, hallelujah is how now it's used in the New Testament. They drop the H in the New Testament, as John is using uh, the Greek as opposed to the Hebrew. But it means the same thing. It means praise the Lord. The first time this uh, word hallelujah that we're about to see used here is used, it's it's in the installation of the ark in the days of King David. And David basically instituted a uh, worship experience, a worship service as they institute the Ark of the Covenant. And he uh, names basically what amounts to a choir, and he forms this choir in the midst of the worship of God. He appoints certain Levites literally to be the Alleluia Chorus, and that's in some ways what we see now here in heaven. So Alleluia being the transliteration of hallelujah simply means praise the Lord. There are four Alleluia's to mark the celebration now in heaven that we're about to see, each of them celebrating four different aspects of uh, the goodness and glory of god's redemptive work upon humanity the first one celebrates the salvation of god let's pick it up here in verse 1 revelation chapter 19 after these things i heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying hallelujah salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the lord our god i want you to notice this hallelujah chorus is, uh, is is reminding us of God's redemptive work. And that's what's going on here in heaven. They're worshiping him and praising him for one simple reason, the salvation and the redemptive work of God in our lives. That Jesus Christ himself died for our sin, three days later he rose again, that he's alive today, And as the Passover lamb of God, it's that lamb of the blood of the Son of God that has restored us fully to the living God. And so they're singing his praises here in verse 1. After these things, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. So they're first celebrating him. They're saying, praise you the Lord for his salvation and that he has saved us from sin's penalty. He has redeemed us. From Satan's tyranny now the second celebration is a uh, celebrating God's severity where the first one celebrates his his salvation the second one celebrates his severity look at what it says here in verse 2 for true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged on her the blood of his servant shed by her And so now they're celebrating not simply his salvation, but yes, even his severity, that he has severely judged this great harlot. Uh, We studied in Revelation 17 and then Revelation 18, and we saw the fall of this harlot religion of Revelation 17, and then we saw the fall of this harlot world system and economic system of Revelation 18, full of all its idolatry and its heresies and its... uh, Uh, continual uh, blasphemy upon the true and living God. And God has judged them severely. Now, once again, we see God uh, in a different way that modern man sees Him. Here's the reality. You cannot fully appreciate the God of our salvation if you don't also fully understand the God of severity, that He's a God of justice and judgment, and His holiness demands that He judged sin. See, if he were not judging sin, then that would make him not holy. He'd no longer be God. The fact that he's holy demands a penalty, and that penalty he has dropped on humanity uh, with great severity. And now they're worshiping him and praising him, uh, not simply for his redemption on men, but now also for his judgment upon sin now there's a third celebration in the hallelujah course of heaven celebrates the sovereignty of god they're celebrating the salvation of god the severity of god and now the sovereignty of god look at what it says here now in verse four it says in verse four uh again in verse three hallelujah her smoke rises up forever and ever and verse 4 says, The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you, his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. They, they say, Hallelujah, but notice they also add a word here, Amen. And so uh, they say, amen, hallelujah, the 24 elders that we saw many, many lessons back representing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This word in scripture, unlike hallelujah, found only four times in the New Testament, the word amen throughout the New Testament over and over and over again, still part of our language today. What does this word amen mean? Well, hallelujah means praise the Lord, but amen means something altogether different. Amen, in essence, is a word that means, so be it. Uh, Amen simply means, yes, it is. Amen simply puts an exclamation point on the end of the sentence. Now, we use this word kind of loosely today, uh, where we might use hallelujah as part of our church language. Uh, We hear people say amen for all types of reasons, like, wow, the weather sure has been hot. Amen to that. Or, You know, wow, the royals had a horrible season, didn't they? Amen, amen. Here's what I want you to see. Uh, This is a word that is actually very sacred in nature, though we use it for secular reasons. It has a sacred nature too. In essence, when you say amen to something God has said, in some way it's a sacred ratification. It's a word that seals and binds. And the 24 elders are now adding amen to the hallelujah chorus as a binding seal upon what God has done. This universal word, by the way, that is spoken throughout all tongues and tribes. I've spoken in various places throughout the world through a translator. Latin America would be one of them. And uh, without a translator, they couldn't understand much of what I'm about to say. But I've noticed there's there's a common word in all common tongues and languages known to men. And sometimes I'll be preaching Latin America and And you'll hear, amen, amen, amen. And what they're saying is one thing I can fully understand. They're saying, so be it. Uh, They're saying, yes, that's true. And uh, it doesn't matter where you go in the world. That's the language that Christians understand because uh, they're now saying that same amen right here in heaven. Now, there's a fourth celebration. There's a fourth hallelujah. And this one has to do with the supremacy of God. So they're celebrating God's salvation they're celebrating God's severity. They're, they're celebrating God's sovereignty. And now they're celebrating God's absolute supremacy. Uh, verse 5, Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, and those who fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunder, saying, Hallelujah, For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And most of you know this word omnipotent. What does it mean? Omnipotent means all-powerful. And they're celebrating that God is almighty, that He is indeed all-powerful, that there is none like Him. And so they're dressed now in these fine white linens, and there's a, a time of celebration and singing, and they're singing, Alleluia, 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 Alleluia. Praise ye the Lord. And they're celebrating him and saying, praise the Lord for his salvation and for his uh, sovereignty, for his severity, and now his supremacy. And in essence, what you have going on here with this hallelujah chorus is the preliminary celebration to the marriage ceremony that's about to take place between the lamb and his bride. And maybe you've been to weddings before and maybe there's a stringed orchestra, a small orchestra, maybe up there playing in some way and what is that that's a preliminary song and preliminary worship or preliminary celebration in some way to what's about to happen in this marriage ceremony and that's kind of what we're seeing here there's a a preliminary worship service so to speak of all the tongues and tribes and peoples and nations of the redeemed and they're all singing and praising Uh, ahead of this ceremony that is about to begin as the Lamb of God is about to be wed formally to his bride the church the Lord Jesus Christ I want you to remember a wedding is often what's in view of our relationship with Jesus as the church is called the bride and he indeed is the bridegroom and that's what's in view here and it's more than just symbolism it's more than just allegory literally in some capacity The church is going to be wed to the bride forever and ever in eternity. Now, there's several different ways. Of course, the New Testament describes our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he said uh, that I am the good shepherd. Peter called him the chief shepherd. We are his sheep. Uh, It is said that he is the head and we, the church, are his body. Uh, It is said that um, he is the chief cornerstone. And we are living stones, the Apostle Peter would write, that we are being built up a spiritual house, a spiritual habitation of God, a temple in some way, a living, breathing temple with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. You remember what Jesus said in John 15? Uh, He is the vine and we are the branches. But one of the most beautiful, I think, most amazing illustrations of our relationship to Jesus is that of a wedding between a bride and a bride and a bridegroom when Jesus comes to rapture his bride listen he is coming as a bridegroom for his bride and the crowning moment of this event happens right here the marriage ceremony of the Lamb of God to the church the bride of Christ now in Revelation chapter 19 and here's what it says now in verse 7 says these words let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now what's amazing to me is so much of our modern wedding ceremonies uh, has so much of a residue or reflection on a Jewish wedding. Why? America and Western civilization is what we call a Judeo-Christian um society or Judeo-Christian civilization, meaning much of our customs and much of our culture comes from Jewish history, our Jewish roots. Never forget that as Christians, we follow a Jewish Messiah, that Judaism is what gave birth to Christianity. When those early Christians who were mostly Jews began following Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, they never one time thought to themselves, well, I'm converting from Judaism to become a Christian. No, for them, following Jesus was just the natural progression of their Judaism. And that means every time we study Scripture, we should never forget that the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, is largely written to Jewish people by Jewish authors about a Jewish Messiah, which means we have to study it not from the view of a 21st century Gentile, European, largely, or Uh, wherever you might come from in your ethnicity, we need to get in the mind of a Jewish reader that would have been reading this from a Jewish author about a Jewish Messiah. And when you do, you begin getting beneath the surface understand why do we do some of what we do? Even in a Judeo-Christian society where it's become more and more secular, much of our wedding customs even today reflect uh, the very things we see here in Scripture And it must be understood through a Jewish wedding and that ancient Jewish custom and culture. What we know for sure is that when Jesus comes to rapture away His church, He's coming as a bridegroom. He's coming to see for His bride. And that should be what is in view at all times. uh, To fully understand what Jesus wants us to understand related to this marriage supper of the Lamb of God to the bride of Christ. To really understand the significance of this marriage You must understand the customs that they had three major stages or phases of an ancient Jewish wedding. And as we understand these three major stages or phases of the Jewish wedding, we can begin to see all types of new things that at least I never could see before when I tried to understand it in a different way. Understand, the first stage was the betrothal stage. And we are currently, as the church, in this first stage of this ancient Jewish wedding. This is what we might call today the engagement. A young man makes the proposal, he pops the question, the young lady says yes, and they become engaged. Now the difference today would be they're not legally married. It's not legally binding. Either of them can break it off at any time they want and walk away in this engagement period today, and there's no legal ramifications whatsoever, unlike in the ancient days. It was more than an engagement. When you were betrothed, you were legally married. Even though it had not yet been consummated, they had not yet exchanged their vows, they were very much legally wed. They were betrothed. And usually it was an arranged marriage. There were times that it was between two fathers. And quite frankly, their children hadn't yet even met. Now, a lot of times um, it was arranged, but kind of uh, maybe pseudo-arranged. I mean, parents today aren't that unique from parents 2,000 years ago, and you want your children to be happy. And so there were times I think that probably the young man and young lady would have had something to say about it as well. But basically what would happen is that young man would indeed pop the question, and uh, he would ask them to uh, marry them. And, and there would be a A written document called the Ketubah. And it was a written document that outlined the vows that that young man was making to that young lady. Uh, Written commitments, written vows that he would take care of her physically, that he would provide for her materially, that he would love her unconditionally. These were the written vows that would be a part of the Ketubah. And then as he would present these written vows to her, usually in the presence of both sets of parents, um, he would present her then with a cup of wine, the fruit of the vine. And if she would take of that cup after having received the ketubah and drink from that cup, in essence what she was saying is, I'm saying yes, I say I do to you. And then watch this. He, He would say something like, I go to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And guess what he would do then? He would disappear. He would he would completely go away. And what was he doing? For sometimes months, if not up to a full year, they would have no contact with each other. They would not see each other whatsoever. And up to a year, they'd have no contact. They wouldn't see each other. That bride is preparing herself. She doesn't know when her husband is coming for her, but she wants to be ready because he's coming unannounced. Now, for that year or months that he was away, he wasn't doing nothing. He was doing something. Guess what he was doing? He was building a room onto his father's house, a bedroom, a bridal chamber, and the entire time he's preparing a place for her. He's going to return for her unannounced. And you can begin to see how the imagery begins taking shape. On the night before Jesus uh, was going to be betrayed, on the night before he would die, he's taking the Passover uh, celebration and supper with his Jewish disciples. A Passover supper that they would have celebrated all of their life as religious Jews. But on this night, it's about to take on a whole new shape. And he begins giving them the ketubah as he takes the bread and he says, this bread is my body which is broken for you. He, he's stating his vows as a bridegroom to the bride. And then he gives him that cup and he says, listen, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he handed that cup to each of those disciples as a bridegroom. And even today, as you take communion, as you take that cup, you take that as the bride of Christ. And every time you drink of that cup, you are saying, I do to you, Jesus, as your bride, I receive you as my bridegroom. And he indeed has made his vows and he wrote them in blood. This, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. We have a, a covenant that has been written by the blood of Jesus And then you remember those words, those very famous words that he spoke in John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now it's been translated as mansions, but the word itself means rooms. There are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also and completely unannounced without calling ahead. Without any warning, the bridegroom would reappear with great pomp and ceremony. And that would be the next stage then of this ancient Jewish wedding. The bridegroom would reappear and the bridal procession would begin. And that's exactly what happens at the rapture of the church. The second phase is called the presentation stage where the bride is formally presented to the bridegroom and the first thing that would happen would be a great bridal procession as the bridegroom would reappear completely without warning, and whisk his bride away back to the Father's house. And that, of course, happens at the rapture of the church. There is coming a day that First Thessalonians chapter 4 says, the bridegroom is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall be forevermore with the Lord. There's coming a day. The bridegroom is going to reappear without warning to whisk away the bride of Christ, and take her back into heaven. Now, here's what's amazing. The next thing that would happen would be a seven-day wedding feast. Now, we can see this, for example, uh, not just in you know extra-biblical records, but you remember the first miracle that Jesus ever did, turning the water into wine, the wedding in Cana. It was a seven-day feast, and that was a part of the Jewish custom and culture. Now, why do you suppose... The tribulation on earth is for seven years. I'll tell you why. Because while all hell is breaking loose down here, there is a wedding feast going on up there. There is a wedding processional and a wedding supper that's going on for seven years. It corresponds to that Jewish custom of a seven-day wedding feast. Hey, most of our weddings today, it happens in one night. It might happen in one afternoon, the whole thing. From the wedding to the vows to... Uh, the, the, uh, the uh, wedding reception and the wedding feast and then the consummation at the uh, end of that wedding as the bride and the bridegroom go off somewhere by themselves completely alone. The, the amazing thing here is all of that corresponds completely in some way to what we see right here with these ancient Jewish weddings. We've just lost the idea of having it go on for seven days. I mean, for seven days they were celebrating, culminating, with the vows and then the consummation of this bride and this bridegroom. It was something to be celebrated. Imagine this. This is what happened with the Jewish uh, wedding in the ancient days. There would be this wedding feast. It would culminate with these couples formally exchanging their vows. And then finally, there would be the consummation phase. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Look at what it says here. This uh, wedding ceremony is followed then by a wedding feast. And that's what we see happening now in Revelation chapter 19. This wedding feast is now taking place. And this wedding ceremony is now happening right here in heaven as Jesus has gone and prepared that place. He's come back for His bride. And now they are there going through this wedding ceremony and this wedding feast together. The bride has made herself ready, it says. Blessed, look at verse 9. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's what we're now seeing. This wedding feast, this wedding ceremony has now come to that climax with this wedding supper. And uh, they're now being wed formally, the bride and the bridegroom, the bride of Christ and his. His bride, the church, that is you and I. This legal process that would happen in the ancient days. Now understand, what does that mean for you and me? We're currently in the first phase. What does it mean? We are legally wed already. Uh, You and I, as the bride of Christ... Though we're in the betrothal phase, we've been betrothed to Him, we are legally wed to Him. It is binding, it is unbreakable, it's irrevocable, it is irreversible. What does that mean? Second Corinthians 11 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul would give us the heart of God, the heart of Jesus for you and I, when he said, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, There is coming a day that there's going to be a formal presentation of you and I as the bride of Christ to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why even today in our Judeo-Christian culture, the father walks down his daughter to formally present the bride to the bridegroom. And in heaven in some way, the heavenly father, God the father, will formally present the bride to the son to be wed. Now, what do we do in the meantime? Look at what Paul says. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. While the bridegroom was away, uh, he wasn't doing nothing. He was doing something. Well, guess what? The bride wasn't doing nothing. She was doing something too. She was preparing herself to see the bridegroom, knowing he was going to reappear. First thing she would do is that she would give every other would-be suitor a complete cold shoulder. Uh, She was saying, I am off-limit, boys. I am spoken for, I am taken, I am wed already. And she was keeping herself chaste, she was keeping her chastity, she was keeping her purity. And that is what we are to do today. Do you know what it says in James 4 and verse 4? Adulterers and adulterers, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore is the friend of the world is the enemy of God. Hey, James was saying those words in view of a wedding. Uh, There's a bride and a bridegroom. Don't be an adulterer on Jesus. Do you know that every single time we love something in this world more than we love Jesus, it's spiritual infidelity. Every time we love our junk more than we love Jesus, it is spiritual adultery. And that's why the Apostle John will write in 1 John Uh, chapter 2 and verse 15 love not the world neither the things that are in the world if any man love the world the love of the father is not on him and all that is in the world lest to the flesh lest the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father but of the world listen carefully he's speaking of these ungodly things that are worldly don't give yourself to those things you've given yourself to him and him alone and that's what the bride would do knowing that one day she's going to see the bride. She wanted to be found chaste. She wanted to be found pure. Purity was so crucial to these ancient Jews. I'm not trying to be graphic. We're all mature here. Let me explain something that would happen in this consummation phase. They would then leave that wedding feast. They would go into that bridal chamber, that, that bedroom built onto the Father's house. And watch this. This consummation was part of the celebration. You talk about awkward. So, that young lady and that husband would go into the bridal chamber. They would consummate the marriage. And as a part of that consummation, guess what that young Jewish husband would do? He would put a white cloth underneath his bride. And as they consummated their marriage, uh, she would naturally bleed. And as they reappeared, out of that bridal chamber to the cheers of their family and friends. Awkward! I mean, they're all out there waiting for them to reappear. Guess what he would do? He'd hold up that white cloth, proving her chastity. Proving that she was pure. Proving that she'd kept herself solely unto Him. That was something then to be celebrated. Listen, we need to keep ourselves spiritually pure to seek lives that are holy and pursue lives of spiritual Chastity, knowing that one day he's going to reappear. Uh, Let's not be a runaway bride. Let's not be a cheating bride. The church is full of repeater cheaters. Let's cleanse ourselves and purify ourselves, even as he is pure, knowing that one day we're going to see him. That legal marriage has already taken place. We have been betrothed more than engaged. We are betrothed, legally bound to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means the words of John 14 should take on a whole new meaning. When he said those words, I go to prepare a place for you. Listen, Jesus for the last 2000 years has gone to his father's house to prepare a place for you, to prepare a room for you. Yeah, it's going to be a mansion, but it's more than that. It is a bridal chamber, a place that one day he's coming that having, having prepared for his bride. Now, In my Father's house are many mansions. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. The second thing was that presentation stage, that time that he would reappear. That happens at the rapture of the church. There's going to be this great processional back into heaven. And then the bridegroom that has gone away to the Father's house is preparing that place even right now. Uh, And he's going to come back very, very, very soon. The rapture reflects the second phase of the Jewish wedding. And we're about then to move into Revelation 19. The rapture has already taken place. And now the marriage of the Lamb is what's about to happen. Verse 9, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, there are the, the true sayings of God. This angel that's showing John this. Look at what John's response is. He's so overwhelmed and so in awe of what he has seen. Verse 10, and I fell at his feet to worship, and he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John immediately wants to worship whoever's standing in front of him. This angel says, hey, 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 bud, whoa, slow down. Don't worship me. I'm just a fellow servant like you. And that's what angels are. They are fellow servants. Now, the marriage of the Lamb takes place after the judgment seat of Christ. I want you to notice what it says in verse 8. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Why today do brides normally dress in a white gown? A fine white linen gown. Well, it represents, what does it say? Righteousness. This fine white linen ground represents her chastity, her purity. Remember what the Apostle Paul said, I want you to be presented to Christ as a chaste virgin. And so traditionally in our Judeo-Christian weddings, the bride will wear a white gown representing her chastity, her sexual purity, her fidelity. Now unfortunately, quite frankly, the white gown has become a bit of a sham. In our modern society, where we don't take seriously Hebrews 13, 4, where it says the marriage bed is undefiled, but the sexually immoral and adulterers God will judge. Here's the deal. Sex is sacred. It's a sacred thing. Sex is deeply holy to God. It's sacred. You know why? Because it represents uh, the consummation in some way of the bridegroom and the bride that will happen in eternity. You know, even now, we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We are his bride and we are his body. Ephesians 5, Paul would quote from Genesis chapter 2 as he gives us this great dissertation on marriage. And then he says, But I show you mystery. I'm really speaking about Jesus and his bride, the church. And everything in physical marriage between a man and a woman is a picture spiritually of this marriage between Jesus and his bride, even sexual intimacy and yes while God gave it for pleasure it's not just for the sake of pleasure God made it holy it's a picture of that intimacy of you and me with our bride the groom the Lord Jesus Christ remember what uh Genesis chapter 2 says as Adam sees his bride Eve for the very first time spontaneous utterance you think he would say something romantic. He's not talking romantically. He immediately talks theologically. He says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And that's the very place that Paul would quote from in Genesis 2. As he quotes from Genesis 2 in Ephesians 5 about me and you, we are bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. And that's why Jesus would say what God has joined together, let no man separate. Uh, that we are one flesh in marriage with another because we are one flesh already with him. Hey, the book of Ephesians, check this out. Ephesians is all about the fact that we are in Christ. You see that phrase often, in Christ. But then Colossians, the very next book, well actually, you know, Philippians, Colossians, guess what you see? You see a different phrase, not simply that we are in Christ, but Christ in us, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27, we are in Him and He is in us. Uh, we are one with Him and He is one with us. We are bone of His bones and flesh of His flesh. All of that is what is pictured when a husband and wife consummate that marriage physically. That is a picture symbolically in some capacity that we can't fully understand of being one with our bridegroom forever endeavor, ever endeavor, ever and ever as the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is where the bride will be purified and then clothed in white. How is it she's wearing fine linen, clean and bright? Well, I'll tell you how she goes through the judgment seat of Christ. And I'm convinced this happens right after the rapture. Uh, what's it say in Romans 14 12 that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ the Bema seat of Christ remember what it is it's an award ceremony where we are rewarded for our service to him our faithfulness our fidelity to him he's already judged our sin it's not to be judged for our sin we're judged for how we live for him and we can see what happens I think in in more detail first Corinthians chapter three look at this passage In 1 Corinthians 3, about the judgment seat of Christ, how is it that we are now finely adorned in fine white linen, representing our purity, the fact that we are now a holy, holy bride? It says in verse 9, 1 Corinthians 3, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Now look what it says. For no other foundation can anyone lay that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day, that day we stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, that day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now I want you to notice something. Fire in the Bible is not always the fire of hell. This isn't hell. Guess where this fire is? This fire is the judgment seat of Christ. In essence, what Paul is saying is there's a day coming, we're going to stand before Him, and all of our works are going to be tried in the fire. And if indeed our works that were eternal uh, endure, it will be like putting gold, silver, and precious stones through the fire. Gold, silver, and precious stones are not destroyed in the fire. They are refined in the fire. They come out brighter, more pure, more beautiful than ever. On the other hand, Some of our works will be found wood, hay, stubble. What happens when you put wood, hay, and stubble through fire? It's gone. Destroys it up in smoke. And at the judgment seat of Christ, guess what? Our lives will be fed through the fire. All that we did, our works. And it will be declared of what sort they were. Were they eternal or were they temporal? And our lives that will live solely for the temporal, things that don't matter, things that don't last forever, our sin will go through the fire and it will be found worthless. Now, those parts of our lives that we live for the eternal things that really, really matter, the things that last forever, the redemption of men, the souls of men, living on mission, fulfilling the Great Commission, that will be found to be the gold, silver, precious stones. Now what happens? It says that we'll be go- going through the fire but not destroyed in the fire, but rather saved through the fire. What happens is we come out on the other side of the fire, we are refined in the fire. And that means all the dross and all the blemishes and all the impurities and all the sin that we brought with us in some capacity, it's burned off. All that's left then is the purity, the chastity, the holiness of the bride of christ now finally she's adorned in white there's a lot of people think well here you know people that believe the church must go through the tribulation post-tribulation of which there's a biblical argument for the reason why some believe that you already know how i feel i've given you five biblical reasons why i'm convinced it's pre-trib and not post-trib rapture but one of the reasons people believe the church has to go through the tribulation is for this reason right here must be purged The church must go through a time of purging. It must be purified. And they believe the church is purified in the tribulation. I've told you, the tribulation is not for the bride of Christ. It's twofold. One, for God to bring vengeance and justice on the sin and rebellion of men. And two, to prepare Israel to finally receive their Messiah. The times of the Gentiles are then over. God turns attention back to the Jews. Neither reason has anything to do with me and you. So God, like Enoch in Genesis 5, translates us, raptures us to heaven like Enoch would not see death for the very same reason. God's about to bring worldwide judgment. Enoch walked with God and he was not. There's coming a day you're going to be walking with God and bam, then you're not. And God's going to translate you or rapture you into heaven so that you will not see the destruction that's about to come once again upon the earth. But what happens? We then go through the purging And the purifying process of the judgment seat of Christ would come out on the other side and look at what now finally we're wearing. All the spots, all the stains, all the shame of our sin has been burned off at the judgment seat of Christ. In Revelation chapter 19, it says in verse 8, "...and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints." We have no righteousness outside of the righteousness of Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21. But now, we've gone through the purging and the fire at the judgment seat of Christ. All that's left then is our righteousness. The righteous things that we really did do in the name of Jesus, that Jesus did in us and through us. And now we're arrayed in that fine white linen, the righteous acts of the saints. Now, at any wedding, guess what? There's attendance at the wedding. This wedding is no different. Why today, for example, in our Judeo-Christian culture with its customs, do you have groomsmen and you have bridesmaids, right? You have attendants at the wedding. Well, this wedding is no different. And it goes right back to the Judeo-Christian customs uh, that were born out of this Jewish culture uh, that we will even see in some way happening now in heaven. So who are the attendants At this wedding, well, first of all, the best man to the bridegroom is John the Baptist. Remember in John chapter three, John's disciples come to him and they're worried and they're all worked up because all of John's disciples are now following this guy, Jesus. And Jesus is gathering disciples that used to be John's disciples. And some of John's guys are going, hey, what about this guy, Jesus? He's taking all our people, right? And they come to him and say, John, what are we going to do about it? guess what John says? Hey, guys. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Relax. This is what was meant to happen. And he makes this amazing statement in John chapter 3 and verse 29. Listen to what he says. He says, He that has the bride is the bridegroom. You're saying, Guy, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm not the one who has the bride. Listen to what he says then. The friend of the bridegroom stands and hears with him and rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. In this my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. And so, just like today, you have a best man standing by the bridegroom. The best man is not there to steal the show. The best man is not there to steal the bride. The best man is simply there to stand with him as a proud friend, usually a best friend in some way to support him, in some way to bring honor to him. Now what is interesting, it's a little unique for us in our culture today where, you know, every wedding is all about the bride. Uh, and kind of the, the husband or the bridegroom is just kind of part of the sideshow. In our custom, you know, everything is focused on the bride. I don't know how you're going to take this, but in the ancient days, in the Jewish culture, it was just the opposite. Uh, the bridegroom was really the center of the moment the center of the ceremony and in some way that's what's going on here in heaven listen it's not going to be about us in heaven it's going to be all about jesus and bringing worship to jesus and bringing glory to jesus in the same way today a best man doesn't do anything if he's a good best man to make it all about him everybody look at me it's all about him and uh propping him up and putting him in some way on a pedestal that's what john is now saying he's saying, "Hey." I'm the friend of the bridegroom, but I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the one that's simply going to stand by him and uh, stand up for him and, and stand behind him. And, and I'm going to bring him glory one day when I hear the voice of the bridegroom shout. And the, I'm going to hear that, that great hallelujah chorus begin to sing. Now, who are the attendants at the wedding? Well, the attendants to the bride, you and I, as the church of Jesus Christ will be those Messianic Jews who are ready for the rapture, according to Matthew 25. And I would suggest beyond them, it will be those Jews of Revelation 7, the 144,000. So Matthew 25 is the parable of the virgins. I want you to notice it's singular. And uh, we're called a virgin, 2 Corinthians 11:2. 2, as the church. But God is very specific in His language. He wants us to connect the dots and wants us to see the details. So, who are the virgins? Well, clearly Revelation 14 verse 4 tells us they are the Jews, following Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, uh, both in the tribulation as well as, I'm convinced, the church age. They are the ones that are then ready for the rapture in the church age. They are the ones then that are taken and martyred for their faith, probably in the tribulation. They then are the attendants at the wedding. Look what it says in Matthew 25, the parable of the virgins, plural, often applied to us as the church, but the church is not in view here uh, because this is virgins plural as opposed to virgin singular. Now it says this, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins around or arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves." Virgins, plural, Revelation 14 and verse 4. Now, what is interesting about this parable is it is a perfect picture of the spiritual condition today of many of the Jews. They are sleeping spiritually. And what Jesus is teaching is that there will be an awakening among the Jews in the latter days. And I'm convinced even now there's an awakening happening. But largely, The Jewish people around the world are not watching. They're not wakening up spiritually to the fact that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and very quickly Jesus is coming. But there's going to be an awakening one day very soon, Revelation chapter 7 tells us. And you can see what's happening here as they are invited then into the wedding, not as the bride, but rather the attendance at the wedding. And I want you to understand more specifically how this applies to you and me in verse 13. Watch therefore, for you do not know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Just like today, many Jewish, Jewish people are not watching and waiting for Jesus to come. They're not ready. It could be today that there are many among us who are not watching and they're not ready. Let me ask you, have you put your faith personally in the shed blood of Jesus and what He did at Calvary If you're not, you are not ready. And if indeed you have placed your faith in Jesus personally as the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he died for the bride to give life to you and I, what should we be doing? Just like that bride while the bridegroom was away. Listen, she wasn't doing nothing. She was making herself ready. What's it look like? While he delays to make yourself ready, 1 John 3 and verse 2. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And brothers, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone that has this hope purifies himself even as He is pure. That bride-to-be was purifying herself daily. She was making herself ready. She was watching Daily, though she didn't know when he was going to be re- reappearing, she was making herself ready every single day. Friends, that's you and me. Let the bride make herself ready. Purify yourself daily, repenting of sin continually, because one day soon the bridegroom is going to reappear. All right, there's the marriage supper. Of the Lamb. Are you ready? Be careful how you answer that. (laughs) Questions? Anybody? Comments? Thoughts? That's what I said. Wow. God is amazing, isn't He? He doesn't miss a thing. You bet. Yeah, let's use a mic so we can capture this for the web. I'm sorry, sorry. I
2: believe you said something in your um, presentation there about 144,000. Yes. What's that about? Because I like to say this first because you always hear Jehovah's Witnesses preaching on the 144,000, like, only, hey, we ain't got. 144,000 going. The rest of us, we're going to be down here. What's up with that?
0: So I did a lesson as a part of this series. You can catch it online still. Just click on the well. You can find all the lessons we've done. One of them is entitled The Real Jehovah's Witnesses, not to be confused from the wannabe Jehovah's Witnesses, because Revelation 7 tells us there will be 144,000 Jews. 12,000 from each tribe that will miraculously receive Jesus as their Messiah shortly after the rapture, sometime early in the tribulation. So Revelation 7 tells us there's 144,000 who really will be the real Jehovah's Witnesses And they will go forth preaching the gospel to all nations, according to what Jesus said in Matthew 24. And that is why at the end of Revelation 7, John doesn't just see the 12,000 from each tribe, 144,000. He sees of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation standing around the throne of God. And so Revelation 14 calls them virgins, plural. This is why I made a distinction, guys. A lot of people take Matthew 25, the parable of the virgins, and they apply it to the church. And they say, well, see, we're the virgin bride of Christ, so this parable must be about you and I. You better be watching. You better be ready, or you're going to get left behind. But remember, God is very precise in the language he uses. He calls the bride of Christ a virgin singular. Why? Because Jesus doesn't have multiple brides. He has one bride, collectively you and I. So in Revelation 14, when he used the word virgins, plural, Clearly, he's distinguishing that from virgin singular, and he defines those virgins, plural in Revelation 14, as those 144,000 Jewish witnesses of Revelation chapter 7. So now you know why I'm convinced they are the attendants at the wedding, and those are the ones in view then as the parable of the virgins uh, in Matthew chapter 25. Does that make sense? Okay. Great question. Somebody else. As you can see, where hey guys, you know every cult. What is a cult? And Jehovah's Witness, by definition, is a cult. Doesn't make them bad people. Doesn't mean we should be mean to them. Um, They they are undoubtedly good people. Just to see, but by definition, what is a cult? A cult, by definition, is truth twisted. A cult, by definition just twists a little bit of the truth. So here there's just a little bit of truth twisted where now they have adopted, they have read themselves into Revelation chapter 7 when they're nowhere in Revelation chapter 7. Gentiles, non-Jews, cannot read themselves into Revelation 7 that specifically has to do with the Jews and say, oh, that's us. See, that's truth, now I'm going to twist it. And unfortunately, people have done that for a long, long time in many places, which is why, you know, 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. What happens when you wrongly divide the word of truth? You come to wrong conclusions, wrong interpretation. And so uh, the first thing you have to ask every time you study the word of God, how do you rightly divide the word of God? Start asking this question, to whom specifically was it written? And if it's not written specifically to you, you cannot apply it doctrinally directly to you. That's why a lot of people read, remember what I said, the Bible is a Jewish book written to Jewish people about a Jewish Messiah. So much of what people do is take things God says specifically to the Jews and try to apply it to me now too. And that's where you have really, really bad doctrine, bad teaching emerging then in the church. Who, who's, who's next? Who else? Anybody? Yeah, up front. Thank you, David. I never, heard it, I never heard it quite like this before, but when I was saved, I was white as snow. And,
2: but when you were talking about when we're raptured to the judgment seat of Christ,
0: there's a different kind of cleansing to purify us. And or being the judgment, though, is it more like kind of where we're going to be in heaven or a yeah. status? Yeah, so the judgment seat of Christ. All right, great, great question. So positionally, we have one place. Practically, we're in a different place. So positionally in Christ, we're holy already. We're blameless already. Second Corinthians five twenty one. he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus literally traded places with us. God took our sin, placed it on him. God took his perfection and holy righteousness, placed it on us. That is our position in Christ. We're blameless and holy already. But practically, nobody here is blameless and holy already. Practically, we still sin daily. So what is the judgment seat of Christ? The judgment seat of Christ is God's process one day of making us practically what we are already positionally holy and blameless pure and white righteous and so the judgment seat of christ is is, is fire and i'm convinced uh, again we're talking literally in some way the refiners fire remember people think of fire as being in hell well that's the fire of god's judgment but in heaven the fire is not the fire of god's judgment the judgment seat of christ It's the fire of god's refining and purifying and so Uh, In some way, he'll take our life, and as it goes through the fire, it burns off all the dross. What happens when you feed gold through the fire? How do you purify gold? Uh, You put it into fire. It melts it down. All the impurities rise to the top. Same thing about silver. The old silversmiths put that silver through the fire. What happens? It, it, It purifies it. The impurities rise to the top. And so it comes out on the other side of the fire. It's not destroyed it's refined. That's what happens then at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, it doesn't destroy us. That's why at 1 Corinthians 3 it says, Yet they shall be saved, Yes, so as by fire. You're saved having gone through the fire. And so at the judgment seat of Christ then, you're not judged for your sin because it's already been judged by him. Jesus already judged it, taking it all upon him. But what does it say in 1 Corinthians 3? Sin will cause you to suffer loss. Yes, some will suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ. Loss of what? Not loss of heaven. Uh, You're already in heaven. You're not there to be judged in the sense of your salvation. So you don't lose your place in heaven. You don't lose your relationship because of sin at the judgment seat of Christ. It's suffer loss of reward. Uh, the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat is the word that Paul used. The bema seat in the ancient Isthmian games and Olympic games is uh, where the judge would sit that presided over the competition, over those games. And then the runners at the end of that race would gather around the bema seat. And that's the very phrase Paul uses, translated as judgment seat. So what happened around that bema seat? It was a reward ceremony. It was an award ceremony where that judge presiding over the game would award those runners who had run well. And he would put then a crown upon their head on those ancient days. Now, it was a very fragile crown. It was a brittle crown. It was a wreath uh, made out of flowers or made out of some type of vine. So obviously, it was very brittle. It was going to decay. That is why Paul would say in First Corinthians chapter 9, now they run For a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. The crowns we're running for are imperishable. They will never decay. They will never fade away. Most people are running the wrong race for the wrong rewards, for the wrong reasons, and they're going to get a crown that will fade away. The things of this world. That's the wood, the hay, the straw. Those things that we do in the end that don't matter, that won't last, that have no meaning in eternity, Wood, hay, and stubble, it's gone. We received a brutal crown that will fade, that will burn, right? When we choose to compromise with sin instead of living for him, no, it doesn't cause us to lose our salvation. It causes us to lose our crowns. We suffer a loss of reward at the judgment seat of Christ. So what happens? We come out on the other side now, no longer uh, with this spotted dress of stains and blame and shame and sin. We've gone through the fire, all the sin, been burned off. We come out on the other side, a perfect, spotless bride, white and clean. And that's why I'm convinced Revelation 19 says the bride has made herself ready. Why is she now ready? Because she's gone through the fires of the judgment seat of Christ. Now she can wear that white linen, the righteousness of the saints. Short questions, no short answers. I'm sorry. David. Um,
1: I heard a sermon a long time ago now
0: uh, about
1: the passages in the Gospels, and I'm not going to be able to quote enough maybe to get where it says uh, they be cast into outer darkness, uh, weeping and wailing and gnashing yeah. their teeth. A lot of times that's interpreted as hell. Yeah. And this preacher was talking about it in terms of where you you're in heaven, but you're not celebrating the way you could be.
0: No offense to that preacher. I'm sure he meant well. <laughs> but that just couldn't be further from the truth. So um, in Matthew 25 is where you're referring there, and it's the, the parable of the talents. You got three people in Matthew 25 in this parable. You got one guy that's given five talents. You got one guy given two talents. You got another guy given one talent. Now, the takeaway Jesus is teaching here is that in the end, you're not going to be judged for what you had. You're going to be judged for what you did with what you had. This is why uh, the little old lady rocking babies for 52 weeks a year for the last 25 years on Sunday morning in the nursery, she might be rewarded more so than the preacher. She wasn't given as much, but she could be equally faithful, if not more so, with what she'd been given. So, in this parable, the guy with five talents invested what he had made it ten. The talent in Jesus' day was a sum of money. Uh, think more than just money. Think about your ability, your God-given opportunity. How are you leveraging it for eternity? Some of us have more opportunity, more ability. Some of us have less opportunity, less ability. Jesus teaching you can all be rewarded equally because it's not about how much you have. It's what you do with what you have. The guy with five talents doubled it, made it 10. He invested it wisely. The guy with two talents doubled it, made it four. He invested it wisely. They were both rewarded accordingly. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll make you ruler over much. Enter you into the joy of your Lord. Now, the one guy that had been given one talent, he didn't do anything with it. He wasted it. it says he buried it in the earth. He comes before the judge, and what he doesn't hear, he doesn't hear well done, good and faithful servant. You know why? Because he squandered what he had. He didn't leverage his ability, he didn't leverage his opportunity. And he says he's cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That doesn't sound like any description of heaven anywhere in the Bible. What Jesus is teaching is this. Listen, Matthew chapter 7, many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. See, the guy in Matthew 25 that squandered the one thing he had He was not truly born again. He's a guy that said Lord with his lips but didn't do it with his life. And what he's teaching is the mark of every Christian on some level will be reward. On some level you will have served him. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, by your fruits you shall know them. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Therefore you shall know them by their fruits. Uh, We can't Personally, know anybody's salvation or judge anybody's eternal destination. But honestly, we can judge fruit. Jesus was talking about the outward manifestation outwardly. Is there anything about my life that says I'm a Christian? If not, I need to wonder, am I a Christian? So the third servant, Matthew 25, uh, he was not a Christian. He's cast into outer darkness. This is a description of hell. God is light. In him is no darkness at all, 1 John 1 and verse 5. Go to Revelation chapter twenty-two. It says there is no darkness; there will never be night. It's eternal day. So Jesus could not have been talking about some, you know, corner closet of heaven somewhere where you know people go for time out if they just didn't do good. Uh, you know, but but Jesus did in Luke twelve teach there are different levels of hell based on your level of knowledge. To whom much is given, much more will be required. So is Jesus here referring to a different level of hell that's eternal darkness, where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth? We're talking isolation that maybe isn't quite as hot as other places in hell might be. I think that's a possibility. But I don't think at all that this guy uh, went to heaven. I don't think there's any chance of that. Gail.
2: I have a little um, wedding ceremony question. S- so based on what you were saying, it kind of draws me back to Mary and Joseph. Yeah. And that had to be kind of a, he was, she was betrothed, so he was gone yeah. in the house, I mean the room on the house. Right. And then um, I know when she went to see her aunt, she, you know, the baby left, so I mean... How did they finish the wedding ceremony, do you think?
0: Yeah, the Bible doesn't say so No,
2: because weren't they supposed wasn't she supposed to be stoned?
0: Yeah. Yeah, by law. So Joseph legally, when he found his betrothed bride with child, legally could have stoned her for infidelity. Which is why, again, the the scripture is very concise, tells you a lot about Joseph. What does it say? He wanted to put her away privately. See, instead of shame her publicly. And the ancient Jewish culture was a shame society. It was. Uh, Where people would be shamed and ostracized publicly by the whole village. So it tells you a lot about Joseph. When he found that his bride-to-be was with child, he legally could have stoned her. At a minimum, he could have publicly shamed her. But if you look at the text and the narrative, it says he chose to put her away privately. He was going to privately divorce her without making a big spectacle of her until what? An angel shows up and says, Joseph, you don't want to do that. Trust me. Yeah. Yeah yeah but what is interesting when you look at the um, the narrative remember they they made the trip from their hometown their home region down to Bethlehem where Joseph's lineage came from by law that was the census and then we know they were still living in Bethlehem as much as two years later and then we know they made a flight clear to Egypt to escape uh, uh, herod And so it was several years before they went back to Nazareth. Now, if you just think practically about the history and the times, I think there's probably a reason they were in no hurry to go back home. Because it was scandalous. I mean, this was scandal. And in all probability, they thought to themselves, well, maybe going to Bethlehem right now is not such a bad idea. Maybe it's good for us to get out of town. And for whatever reason, they were in no hurry to go back home. And I think probably that's the reason why. I mean, even when you look at the Pharisees later on in the life of Jesus, they were going, hey, isn't this the carpenter's son? You know, that son? I mean, the implication was, you know, the rumors about Jesus, we, we, we know about this guy. He can't be the Messiah. So... Um, it's very interesting, Gail, but it tells you a lot about the character of Joseph, doesn't it? Who else? What else? Got time for one more. Then we'll have to call it a night until January. Anybody? Yeah. Thank you, David. I'm not sure you want to get into it, but... Um, it may take till January. Well... may be here a while. It opens up. <laughs> Different can of worms, but uh, you talked about the 144, and there's going to be 12 from 12 tribes, and you called them all Jews, but only one tribe's Jewish. All right, explain, Mark. Is so how the Bible uses the house of Israel and Jews, how does it? So, you may have a different take. You may have heard a different teaching. I personally don't see uh, where the Bible delineates in terms of who is a Jew. And I know what you're talking about because uh, you've got the house of Israel And then you have uh, Judah. And, of course, there was the Civil War shortly after the days of Solomon where the ten northern tribes went their way. The two southern tribes went their way. Collectively, the ten northern tribes were known as Israel or the House of Israel. The two southern tribes were known as Judah. And so there are some that kind of see a, a, a dichotomy there, a delineation there. I personally don't see any delineation there, don't see a dichotomy there. All of these people trace their lineage back to Abraham. They're all Hebrews. Uh, And where's the word Hebrew come from? It comes from in Genesis uh, chapter 10, tells us where Abraham came from. Uh, He came from a man known as Eber. Eber is the same word, the same etymology as Hebrew. So all these people trace their same family tree back to uh, the father of the Hebrews back to the father of the Jews who is Abraham so personally I don't see any difference there Uh, others can disagree I wouldn't necessarily uh, go to war over that one I'm just telling you I personally don't see a difference here and you hear a lot of really bad teaching on this guy's of the worldwide Church of God guess who they believe the Lost Tribes of Israel are guess where they went we are the Lost Tribes of Israel It's the Worldwide Church of God. What they believe is that during the Assyrian invasion of 722 B.C., those 10 northern tribes got carried off where they were scattered among the nations, eventually finding their way into the European nations that eventually sailed the Atlantic and came to the Americas. So what do you think they do with the book of Revelation? They read us back into all of it because we're the lost tribes. Now, let me tell you how I think Jesus feels about this. You go to the seven letters early on in Revelation and you go to a specific church, I uh, can't remember which one right now, but one of the things he lights up one of those churches for is because they had people in there claiming to be Jews who were not. And it appears to tick Jesus off when people claim to be Jews who aren't. And there is no way you and I most of us here with European descent, some of us here with African descent, there's no way, if you're from Asia or Africa, or there's no way we can say we're Jews. We're not. Jews are Jews. And uh, this is a time, honestly, where a lot of people are trying to hijack a lot of the promises made specifically to Jews. And I'm just saying, it appears to take the Jewish Messiah off when people are masquerading as Jews. So... There's a lot of that going on these days. And Jehovah's Witnesses would just be one of many others where there's examples, guys, of this. So uh, let's just be who God's made us to be. Um, We are the Gentile bride of Christ that he has grafted in, according to Romans chapter 10, to the olive tree so that we can be one family, Jew and Gentile, together forever as the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what God intended all along. Praise God. (laughs) Guys, I love you a whole bunch. I've enjoyed this year studying Revelation with you. Revelation 22 will launch the first week of December. We'll finish up our study then. January, we will be back here. Uh, Keep your ear to the ground, and uh, we'll be announcing when we're going to launch again, we'll figure out what we're going to do between now and then uh, when we launch next year the book of Leviticus, okay? So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for a chance to be together and God, we're so thankful that you are coming, Lord Jesus, as that bridegroom for a bride. And I do pray that we would be ready, that God, we'd be watching, that we, Lord, would keep ourselves chaste spiritually in these days of depravity, that, Lord, you would find each of us individually in this bride at abundant life, a chaste virgin bride, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all very much. Yes. Thank you, Gary, for the reminder. We do have a business meeting. You can leave if you want to. I'm not offended if you do. Uh, But we do have a quarterly business meeting by our bylaws, so we will begin that in exactly three minutes and 45 seconds.